a quick warning that this episode contains references to suicide plus some strong language. Hi, I'm Nora McInerney. And this is terrible. Thanks for asking. Like every human on Earth, I want desperately to be able to have the right words for every situation. And also, like every human on Earth, I routinely say, great, how are you, when someone says, good morning. Or, you too, when the gate agent says, have a nice flight. That's not the biggest deal, obviously. A bigger deal is when someone says, have a nice day, and you try to reply, but you haven't used your voice enough that day, or there's like this weird little frog in your throat, and <laughs> and instead of just replying like a normal person, you just kind of whisper, like, you do. It makes... Or like, it's like this little gurgle. It's so gross and embarrassing, but you're already passing each other in the hallway. There's no way to just, you got to hope it just passes. You just go. Ugh. But worse than that, worse than that gurgle or that weird baby whisper that you accidentally give somebody is just not knowing what to say. Two things happen in that case. One, we just don't say anything. Or... Our mouth opens on its own and just says whatever it wants to say, which is how I ended up saying, what the fuck are you even talking about? When my fiance called me to say his brother was dead. Because what the fuck was he talking about? I was fresh off an airplane, two time zones away. His parents had just returned home from a cruise. They're retired. They got that cruise life. They got home from their cruise They went to their son's apartment, and Michael was dead. He was 42. He had no business being dead. What the fuck are you even talking about? That was what my mouth said, while my fiancé Matthew tried to catch his breath, and my driver tried to pretend not to be listening to my phone call. What the fuck are you even talking about? Michael's death was shocking, but it was also not a shock, if that makes sense. It was shocking because it's always going to be shocking when someone dies, especially when they were planning to come over for dinner that week. It wasn't a shock because life was hard for Michael, and nobody really expected him to live into old age. I have known several people like Michael. We all have. And if you haven't known them, you've at least seen them. And probably judged them. Michael had really long hair that we all wished he would cut, and plugs in his earlobes that were hard to look at. His shoulders slumped, his speech was slow, his feet shuffled, his nails were really long and stained with nicotine. His interests were esoteric. He was in this world, but not always a part of it. He was more of a bystander, an observer. He was 42, going on 90. Life for Michael was like a puzzle he didn't have all the pieces for. Michael had struggled for years with severe mental illness that made being alive difficult in every sense. He'd attempted suicide multiple times... He'd been admitted to several psych wards and once been prescribed so much lithium he'd gone into renal failure. 
The medications he took to keep his illnesses in control made him sleepy, made him gain weight, and came with a list of warnings that made it clear that his life would not be a long one. It was hard for Michael to connect with people. It was hard for him to build relationships. It was hard for him to work and hard for him to maintain an independent life, but he did do it. He had a part-time job. He had his own apartment. He was proud to say that he had never had to go back to a psych ward after moving to Minnesota. He wanted to be well enough to own a dog again. He did all these things that I take for granted, with a lot of help from his mother, who kept him on top of doctor's appointments, who checked in with him every day, many, many times a day, who knew before she even opened the door to his apartment that day that her oldest son was dead. She just knew, because moms know. Like every huge life plot twist, everything after the phone call about Michael's death, that phone call that I got in the back of an Uber after getting off a plane where I said the wrong thing at the wrong time, everything after that was a blur. By the time I got on the plane to come home, the grief machine, and that is, by the way, grief machine with capital letters, the grief machine was already plugging along the way it does, with a to-do list. There was an apartment to clean out, an obituary to write, family to call, accounts to settle, and a memorial of some kind, right? Now, I've spent a lot of time imagining my own funeral. I've done it since I was a kid, probably because when you're raised Catholic, going to funerals is basically a part of your social life. Maybe some little girls spent their days planning their wedding day, their big special party, but not this little girl. I was always thinking about the last party I'd ever throw. The music, the general run of show, the life-size cutouts of me at various life phases that attendees could pose with for photo ops. That is also, by the way, that idea anyone can take. I love that idea. Michael never wanted a funeral. Instead, he wanted an Irish wake at his favorite place in Madison, Wisconsin. So his mother tried to do that with extended family. We all spent a recent Sunday sitting in a basement banquet room for a late lunch and beers. We ordered nachos. I ran my fingers over the childhood photos his mother had spread across an adjacent table. And I felt my heart swell with sadness for childhood Michael and teenager Michael. These two beautiful boys who would never recognize the broken man they'd grow up to be. I hugged his mother and his father, and I cried in a reserved way, like that way that makes your throat and your chest hurt because your body is like, you just swallowed a drawer full of sharp feelings. Could you maybe get them out of your chest? Could you could you cry out loud a little? Just dislodge them? I cried for that little boy who doesn't know the darkness that's coming for him in adulthood. For that teenager whose dreams will go unrealized. Not because he's a bad person, but because he lost the genetic lottery. You know, the one that says, you get a normal life and die in your sleep at 88. And you, you get brain cancer and die at 35. And you, 
You Diet 42 from complications from the many medications that helped manage your debilitating mental illness. I've been to many funerals and memorials and plenty that were very non-traditional. But I know that you're always supposed to say something. Or someone is supposed to say something. You're supposed to summarize a dead person. Highlight their best qualities, share something that proves that they were here, that they mattered, that they will be missed. Michael's mother, through her tears, thanked everyone for coming. We raised our glasses, and there was, at least to me, a long moment of quiet. The moment where someone was supposed to say that something. That something that would unleash all the sad. That would let us all cry and wipe our noses on our sleeves and just feel it, you know? Just get that out. His uncle stood up and I relaxed. Someone was saying something. It ended up being a short joke. Not an inappropriate one, not a mean one, just a joke. And... A toast. We clinked glasses and made eye contact and said, to Michael. And that quiet returned, waiting for someone to fill it. Someone should say something. Someone should say something. Someone should say something. I nudged my fiancé. He is so sweet. He is so shy. And he looked at me like if he opened his mouth, he would break into a million pieces. And then, our nachos came. In the moment of quiet, where someone could say something had passed. We ate. Talked about the weather and the NCAA tournament. We made our kids order milk instead of pop. And then we said goodbye the Midwestern way. 40 minutes of small talk standing in the door. And we walked to our cars. It was over. And nothing had been said. Back at the hotel, we retreated to our rooms, emotionally congested and ready for bed at 6 p.m. And everything that wasn't said spun in my head. That night, I held Michael's little brother, the man I'm going to marry, and we cried and cried. Quietly, because we were sharing a room with our children and there were two additional humans in our bed, but... We cried because nobody said anything. Because we didn't say anything. Because what do you say when a complicated person dies a complicated death after a complicated life? It was hard to fall asleep that night. When we woke up, the sky in Madison was gray and heavy. We gathered our things. We packed the kids up in the minivan 
and we headed back to Minneapolis. It was a quiet ride. I thought about Michael. I thought about the children I'm raising with Matthew. About how they range from five months old to 15 years old. About how there's so much life ahead of them and how we don't know what awaits them. I thought about how we speak to our kids and how I try to make sure that they all know two very important things about themselves and about other people. It's a simple idea I got from a conversation with my friend Damon, who has children of his own. I hold our children's faces in my hands and I tell them they have greatness inside of them and goodness too. I remind them that greatness and goodness are two things they are meant to uncover in themselves and find in other people. I don't know what to tell them about why life is so much harder for some people than it is for others. I just hope they grow up to be gentle with themselves and with everyone they meet. When I cry for Michael, it's because he had greatness inside of him. And goodness, too. Michael was unapologetically himself, and I loved that. I loved Michael just as immediately as I loved his little brother. Because I love, love, love people who are themselves. Who love what they love with no apologies. Our first interaction, Michael made so much effort to connect with me. And he wanted to know if I liked punk music. And I said, I like Paramore. And he tried again. And he said, do I like horror movies? And I said, absolutely not, in no way. And he said, okay, well, what about Japanese horror movies? Also no. And that didn't matter. He would just text me about what we did have in common, which was the family that he was inviting me into. Even though his anxiety prevented him from doing a lot outside of his apartment and his job, He was one of the first people to arrive at the hospital when my second son was born. He had changed his clothes so he wouldn't smell of cigarettes and washed his hands religiously before holding his nephew for the first time. He was the first to congratulate me on my engagement to his little brother. It will be so nice to call you my sister, he texted me. I replied with three giant heart emoji. I've read that exchange maybe a hundred times since he died. When I say that somebody should have said something in that basement banquet room in Madison, Wisconsin, I mainly mean that I should have said something. Even though, as far as the grief pecking order goes, I'm probably at the bottom because I'm... Michael's little brother's hmm I mean now we're now we're engaged so I'm Michael's little brother's fiance and also the mother of his child his third child <laughs> you know that we had the old fashioned way first comes baby then comes minivan then comes marriage I've only been around this family for about a year And I let that sort of imaginary or maybe real hierarchy 
keep me from saying something about a person who, in the short time that we knew each other, was really important to me. I should have said something, and this is what I should have said. I should have said how brave Michael was to live in a body whose chemistry was so difficult, in a world that doesn't understand people like him, in a world where people use words like schizo or bipolar as, you know, a casual adjective, a way to describe something that doesn't quite work right or someone who doesn't quite act normally, not like their actual diagnoses that real people struggle with. I should have said he did his best, and that he did it with a kind heart. I should have said that he had greatness inside of him and goodness too. I should have said that. I should have said it sooner. Somebody should have said it sooner. So I'm saying it now. This was terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm Nora McInerney. You can find me on the internet at Nora Borealis, and you can find my producer Hans in the studio where he's been working on everything to do with our new season. We have lots of ideas, and it's going to be really cool. And Hans does so much work, but he's so humble, he would never tell you that. He's so good. You can keep track of everything we do at (laughs) just everything. What am I doing? What have I eaten today? Well, two pieces of toast and a candy bar. I'm not perfect. You can keep track of everything I eat and everything we do at TTFA Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you should tell a friend about us. Just would be a nice thing to do. I'd, I'd like it if more people listen to this show. A lot of people, several people have been like, I had never even heard a podcast, but I downloaded yours, and I think that is so cool. I I can't believe I'm somebody's first podcast. That is really rad. We also have a special club we've created for special listeners, and you can check that out if you go to ttfa.org and donate. You could be in the terrible club. We'd love to have you. We talk about season two. We run ideas by our group. We talk about feelings. We discuss different episodes. It's, It's a cool spot. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. You should follow him on Instagram. It's Joffrey, that's G-E-O, Offrey. (laughs) Lamar Wilson, he's got a new album out. He's making some fantastic stuff, and he's a hell of a guy. Terrible Thanks for Asking is a production of American Public Media.